Welcome back to the podcast. Glad you're listening. My name is Gabe Jenkins. I'm the men's pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs. And I think you're really going to enjoy the next uh, three episodes on the podcast because I'm going to play portions of a recent men's business and leadership summit that we hosted at New Life. And uh, this was really a rich morning. We had about 100 guys join us. And the purpose of the summit was to encourage, equip, and connect men who are serving in the marketplace. And so what we did is uh, I invited three men to speak on different topics. These are men who each have a significant level of experience in business. They're men who, they're men of faith. They have a deep love for God, but they're men also who have just experienced a lot of really good fruit in business, men who have a lot of wisdom and knowledge to share. And so Tim Larson, Dave Eitmiller, and Sam Cameron each took a different topic. And so again, over the next three weeks on the podcast, I want to play those talks for you uh, so you can enjoy them. And before I, I start and play Tim's talk today, uh, I do want to let you know that we're going to host another Business and Leadership Summit on Saturday, December 8th from 8 to 10.30 a.m. The feedback we heard from the first one was outstanding, and these guys, uh, by far the most common feedback was, please offer more of these gatherings, and so we're going to do it. And I want to invite you to join us again. It's Saturday, December 8th from 8 a.m. to 10.30, and you can find out more information uh, on our website at newlifechurch.org slash men. But here's the first talk from Tim Larson. I'm a CPA. What else do you want to know? <laughs> we lived in Dallas for 30 years, grew up in the Midwest, uh, retired from a big firm and moved up here about three years ago. Uh, my wife had one thing on her bucket list. She said, I want to live near the grandchildren. We had three grandkids up here, my son-in-law's Air Force. So we left Dallas in the heat because I think actually that was the second thing on our bucket list was to get out of Texas. <clears throat> With all due respect to Texas. A lot of my money went to Texas at schools, but, uh, but we love being here. So the second thing about this morning is that I want to visit with you about righteousness. Is that all right? Fifty years ago, my moral compass wasn't very well developed. I lived across the street from a kid who was a couple of years older than me, and he'd gotten into shoplifting. And <clears throat> I can't now think of why, but that sounded exciting to me. So one afternoon, we ride down to a store figured out how to steal a book. I walked out, and for an instant, it felt great. That evening, it didn't feel very good. Two nights later, I was pretty upset. Hadn't been eating well. Hadn't been sleeping well. My mom comes in. <clears throat> she knows something wrong. You know, moms always know. <clears throat> What's wrong? Like, you know, nothing. <laughs> well, obviously, something's wrong. So through the tears, I confessed, talked about the kid across the street, we went down to the store, I stole a book, didn't feel very good about it, and we resolved, first thing next morning, we're going to go down to the store, give the book back, make it right, going to apologize to the store owner, 
and face the consequences. So we do that. The next morning, first thing, go down to the store, give the book back, apologize to the owner. I'm feeling this great sense of relief, which really I felt the moment that I shared with my mom, this is what's happened, and I know, okay, we're going to make it right. And, uh, and so after that, I thought everything is settled, and my mom says to the store owner, well, if you think we should call the police, <clears throat> I went, you know, I'm 12. I, you know, I thought this was done. Mom, what the heck? Well, I learned a couple of really important lessons. One is, if you've got friends and they're headed the wrong way, don't follow them. And over time, I grew to the point where I didn't spend any time with this kid that I'd probably played with every day of my life for several years. The second thing was, if you've done something wrong, quickly going to that person that you have wronged and apologizing for it, making it right, accepting the consequences, working through it, it's a good thing to do. All right, fast forward 20 years. We have four kids. We're in Texas. One night, we're going to go to Baskin-Robbins, get some ice cream. We head out of the store. Three of the kids are getting in on the passenger side. And my wife and I'm shepherding my youngest two-year-old around the front of the van. In an instant, he picks up a rock, chunks it against the plate glass window of the ice cream shop, breaks the window, and and I'm dumbfounded. How could that have happened so quickly? It wasn't out of malice. He wasn't mad. The rock didn't go very fast. So I get him in the car, get in on my side, and just sigh. And I asked my wife, I said, did you see what happened? No, she wasn't dealing with the other kids. I said, Matt, just broke that window. Nobody noticed it inside. It didn't shatter. There are a bunch of people getting ice cream, and so there's a lot of noise in the shop. And then I asked her, like, the key question. Well, do you think I should go in and tell them? And I, you know, now I look back and think, what a rhetorical question. I knew the answer, but it's like I was wanting her to say, no, that would be a dumb thing to do. It's late. The kids need to get to bed. And then, you know, I'm thinking about my kids. My oldest is nine. What's going on? Something happened. You know, Matt broke the window. You know, what's dad going to do? Well, obviously, I have to go into the store, talk to the manager, give him my contact information. I'll pay for the window. What do these stories have to do with being righteous. Now, what do they have to do with being righteous in my business life? Well, to me, a couple things. First, you don't ever arrive at being righteous. You don't wake up one day and go, "Ah, I've made it. I don't really have to pay attention to what comes next. You know what's going to happen? There will be facts and circumstances, again, that I'll be faced with that will force me to make a decision. Am I going to do the right thing or not? Alan Kreider, in his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, describes habitus of the early Christians, the first one, two, three centuries. And he talks about it as their reflexive behavior. It was learned behavior. But how they dealt with each other, and not only that, but how they dealt with pagans drew people to Christ. And not only in the home, but when they went out and were dealing in a business context in the marketplace with pagans, they acted differently. And in fact, Kreider points out that that drew a lot of pagans to Christ. Not what was going on in the home, but what the Christians were doing in the market. And they said, this is a better way. You're honest. You have integrity. You deal with issues that are problems. You know, you use fair weights and scales. So I want to be like that. Um, 
The early Christian's reflexive behavior was to do the right thing all the time. I don't want to go through conflict like thinking, okay, well, do I, do I do what's right or not? I might need some guidance from the Holy Spirit to help me figure out what is the right thing to do, but I don't want to struggle with doing the right thing once God has showed me that. Second, righteousness can't be compartmentalized. You can't do what's right in one area and not in another and, and really be righteous, right? God doesn't say, hey, be righteous in your family or in your thought life, but in the business setting, in the marketplace, that's different, don't worry about it. Nope, that's not the way it works. First John 3, 7 says, he who does what is right is righteous. There's no qualification. So what's the prize? What do, we, what do we get? What does the Lord say that he will do for us? What does the Bible say? Josh, maybe you could put this up. I spent some time going through this. This is not an exhaustive list. And I'm not going to, like, go through all of them. Can you guys all see this? Uh, the Lord rewards me. David is telling Saul about that, you know. If you're righteous, you will be rewarded. I prosper. His love surrounds me. He's attended attentive to my cry. He condemns my foes, gives me the desires of my heart. I'll shine like the dawn. <clears throat> I like the last one on the first column. I am not forsaken and my children will not beg. They will be blessed. I'll inherit the land. He saves me. He helps me. Blesses my home. I won't go hungry. My nation is exalted. I thought that was an interesting one. I'll find life, prosperity, and honor. I'll live and last in Matthew, I will go to eternal life. I don't know about you, but this looks like a pretty good list. A couple things struck me about it. One was the ordering of it. And there are a lot of other scriptures about righteousness, but I was going through it. These are the ones that I went through, and it's like at the very beginning, the Lord rewards me. Then through Psalms, Proverbs, you know, Ezekiel and Daniel, I had a couple of scriptures I hear what those rewards are, and finally, I will go to eternal life. Um, Some of you may recall Glenn Packiam's message on Psalm 112 um, back a few months ago when the pastors were doing a series on Psalms. He said something that really stuck with me. He said, you know, he said, God's order in the cosmos is based on the foundation of righteousness and justice. And that, that just grabbed my attention, grabbed my heart. And when I went through this and looked at God's intent for those that are righteous, um, it's, it's pretty significant. So what's the problem? If this is the reward, you can pull this down now, Josh. If this is the reward, um, what's the problem? Why can't I be righteous all the time? Well, some of you may be, saying, well, duh, I'm a sinner. Jesus is my righteousness. There's no way I can attain to being righteous all the time. Let me share with you three things that have affected me in my life that have been challenges for me. Um, The first is fear. I start asking what-if questions. What happens if I do the right thing? Sometimes it's easy, but sometimes maybe something will go wrong. What if something does go wrong? What if I look foolish? What if my boss wants me to do something different? What if he wants me to lay low, don't say anything? What if the client wants me to do something wrong? What if doing the right thing costs me something? What if it costs my company something? What if I lose my job? I can get caught up in all of these what-if questions. 
Fear can come a lot of different ways. Early in my career, we had to keep track of our time. We've got utilization goals. They're kind of a stretch. You have to charge these hours to projects. Well, am I going to be honest in how I do that, or am I going to pad hours just to get whatever it is that management says my goal is? Well, <clears throat> many years ago, I came across Leviticus 19.36. It says, use honest scales and honest weights. And for me, because time was the inventory that we dealt with, that meant charge only the time that you really spent on any particular project, no more and no less. In one of my first client interviews, I was sitting in a uh, conference room. My manager was there, client was there, and we were taking the documentation for all the things that this guy was going to deduct in his business. And we get to travel expenses. He doesn't have anything. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd. But I'm brand new, so I'm just there to listen and you know, record and say, yes, sir, put things in the file. And in a span of 10 seconds, my manager says, well, what do you think it was? The client says $743. That number gets you know, written on a piece of paper, goes into the file, it's gone, done, just like that. I remember thinking, was that right? Was that just grabbing something out of the air? Was there anything real to that? Should I have said something? I didn't, but that's the question that you get into. And it was an element of fear that kept me from speaking out in that particular instance. Fear can also come over something that has a lot more significant consequences. In 2007, now I'm way along in my career, we were doing a complicated restructuring for a client that had companies all over the globe. And one of the things that we did was move a German company. And um, so we have a big meeting in New York. I've got a number of my partners, a number of the client staff. We probably had 15 or 18 people. And we're going through the progress to date on this project, what's left. And I had a German partner there who was relatively quiet. He hadn't been all that plugged into the project, but as he understood what happened in a thick German accent, he goes, you can't do that. And, you know, everybody else is kind of moving along. And, you know, when he, he kind of scratched his face, you can't do that loud. And he just disrupted everything. He sucked the life out of the conference room. And we stopped and said, Walter, you know, what are you, what are you talking about? And he proceeded to tell us that we had triggered an obscure tax in very large amounts. So, I, you ever had the gut punch? And you, you know, oh, this, this is bad. It, it disrupted our meeting over the next several weeks. I must tell you, I learned everything and more that I wanted to know about what is called the German real estate transfer tax. If you want to know later, let me know. I can share it with you. <laughs> tell, uh, I, you know, you don't really want to know. All those what-if questions. Oh, what if? I didn't even know what all the questions were. After a lot of prayer, analysis, thought, there were different opinions on it. I thought, you know what we need to do? My firm needs to issue an indemnity or an insurance policy to this client. And the client was uh, the woman that ran the tax group that was responsible for this. It was a big project. It had, it had uh, sight up to the board. She said, I, you know, this is terrible. So fear, I mean, she was fearful. But I said, we need to issue this insurance policy so that if the company pays it and it actually materializes, my firm needs to pay it. And I know, I know the date. I, 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 all this is like a vivid memory to me because what was at work in my heart was fear. I, what if? What if they really do have to pay it? What if we have to pay it back? What about 
my job. And it wasn't only me. My partners were like, Larson, are we doing the right thing? Are you know, Really? Is this what we're going to do? Well, <clears throat> during that time, Philippians 4, 6 became a favorite scripture. You all know it. Do not be anxious for anything, right? But in prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So I was going, God, that German real estate transfer tax, make it not apply. <clears throat> I mean, you know, we're U.S. centric, but he's God over Germany too, right? Well, um, I was clear on what I thought the right thing to do was, despite my fear, and God helped me navigate all the issues with the client and with my firm, and then the rest was up to him. Second thing that has been an issue in my life is will I humble myself before others? When I do something wrong, uh, when somebody on my team does something wrong, or, or my firm, somebody that I may not even be aware of, and we were a large firm. If we do something wrong, are we going to speak out? Am I going to speak out and make it right? And sometimes my pride is like, no, I don't want to do that. That'll make me vulnerable. Well, dealing with an issue quickly and talking to whoever I've wronged is something that I'd learned as a kid. But it, it didn't matter later on. It still was a challenge. could be. You've heard the saying, bad news doesn't get better with age. I can't remember how many times that would come to me. Either I'd done something and I knew I had to speak to a client or a lot of times what had happened, my team does something and something ends up on my desk. <laughs> this is a bad thing. You're the one that has to go talk to the client. And there was always the thinking, well, maybe there's some way out of it, but dealing with it quickly, working through an apology if that was necessary, dealing with the consequences, you've got to do it. You've got to step right up and do it. Uh, I was at a board meeting of a Fortune 500 company. I was there early with one of my partners. And um, we were meeting with an audit committee. So the audit committee of the board deals with the outside public accounting firm. The chairman of that committee was there. His name was Scott. Scott had a public company of his own. They'd been in the media lately because of some accounting issues that they were having with the Securities and Exchange Commission. So since it hit the media, it was kind of a big deal. We got to talking about it, or just the three of us, and talking about how that issue was getting resolved. Was it, you know, going well and, and doing okay, going to be resolved? And, you know, we kind of assumed that it would. And then something came up about the partner of that firm, a competitor of ours, and how he was working through it and working with his national office. And, and Scott got really agitated. He said, you know what? I can't find him. He won't return my calls. They're not helping us with any of this analysis. We're having to do it all on our own. He just, he ranted for like 60 seconds. I, I was feeling a, a little uncomfortable. I thought, we've got to calm the guy down before we get to our meeting, or he'll have all this sort of rolling off into our meeting. And then he said something that really caught my attention. He said, my dad always taught me to run to the fire, not away from it. In a span of three minutes, maybe, I, I caught that, you know, quickly deal with something if it's wrong, going back to whoever I've wronged, accept the consequences, work through them. I'll just, I'll never forget that. The last thing that uh, has affected me is the desire to take the easy road, the path of least resistance. Doing what's right frequently, in my experience at least, is not the easy road. It takes more time, usually costs me profit, usually is on something that 
won't be economically efficient in terms of generating some profit, right? Now I'm having to deal with the problem and work through that. So there are a lot of, a lot of ways that I would really just not go through all of that. Just let me take the path of least resistance. Last story. Uh, I had a U.S. company that had a Mexico subsidiary that was very profitable. The Mexico bank accounts were swept every week into the U.S. And I thought, oh, that sounds like pretty efficient cash management. Now they can have access to whatever the profit is in the cash down in Mexico. Well, there's a rule in the U.S. that says if there's a subsidiary and the cash is back in the U.S., you've got to report the Mexico profit in the U.S., at least to the extent of the cash. You know, I'm going to give you guys a quiz at the end on a couple of tax <laughs> theories. So this is one. I won't give you the statutory section because then you start throwing things at me. Well, I'm new on the account. I have a team. <clears throat> We're reviewing last year's return. And it's not super evident, but one of my managers, within the span of two questions, five minutes, said, oh, all this cash is back sitting in the U.S. I wonder if they reported any U.S. In or any." Mexico income in the U.S. return. Guess what? They hadn't. And it was a big number as a public company. So under the theory of path of least resistance, well, I'll spend some time with this because we'd like the answer to be it doesn't matter. It was a complicated calculation, complicated set of facts and circumstances. We worked through it. My team's working through it. And at the end of the day, we couldn't get the number to be zero. It was actually a couple of million bucks. Back to my what-if questions. Oh, I have to talk to my client. I have to talk to his boss, the chief financial officer. I have to talk to my boss, the coordinating partner. We might have to reissue financial statements. Any of you that have dealt with a public setting, companies don't want to do that. So <clears throat> gut punch again. And then in that instance, it really wasn't something, an error that I had done. But, you know, maybe... My firm, the prior year, sh should have been looking at this more closely. We, we didn't have anything to do with that return. But all those questions come back. What's going to happen? And all those what-ifs were back. Well, so what's the path? If the prize is God's heart towards the righteous, but the problem is, at least to me, fear, pride, and the desire to take the easy road, what's the path? How do we overcome the problem to get to the prize? Take a deep breath with me. Exhale. One more time. Come, Holy Spirit. Right? Come into my life. Pastor Brady has encouraged us to start each day with that prayer. Holy Spirit, guide me today. Help me to know what to do. Help me to do it. Gabe just finished a class on the Spirit-empowered man. Living by the Holy Spirit is a key to a righteous life. Romans 14, 17 says, The kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but what? Righteousness, peace, and joy, what? In the Holy Spirit. He will guide us. Second thing we can do is delight in and meditate on God's laws. Psalm 1, 1 to 3 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. You know this. Or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. <clears throat> but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does prospers. I want to be like that man. Last, do not fear. 
1 Peter 3, 12 to 15 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. I go back to that list. All these things are on that list in terms of God's heart towards the righteous. Who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. And I love the exhortation not to be fearful. Coach John Wooden said, the true test of a man's character is what he does when no one is watching. So will you join me to commit to do three things so that when no one's watching, God's watching, but no one's watching, I'll do the right thing and we'll do the right thing. First, let's ask the Holy Spirit to be with us each day. Second, let's delight in and meditate on God's laws. And third, since we know the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, let's not fear the consequences of doing the right thing. Thank you.